2: 909 now on this monday morning it has been over two years since russia invaded ukraine and brian taylor joins us director of the moynihan institute of global affairs at the maxwell school at syracuse university and author of the code of putinism to kind of talk about it
3: all good morning sir how are you good morning tommy i'm well thanks
2: um, I, I guess the first place to start would would be with what happened over two years ago, because we have all been bombarded with so much information since then. Uh, maybe you can take us back, give us some context on all of this.
3: Sure. So the place I would start is actually in February 2014, when after, <coughs> excuse me, a revolution in Kiev overthrew the pro-Russian president. Vladimir Putin annexed illegally one region of Ukraine known as Crimea and started uh, a proxy war in the eastern part of Ukraine in a region known as the Donbass. So between 2014 and 2022, there was low-scale warfare already happening between Ukraine. But obviously that escalated greatly two years ago when Putin launched a full-scale invasion of uh, the entire country. And the goal seems to have been to overthrow the current government in Ukraine and install a pro-Russian government there. Uh, as, <coughs> excuse me, listeners will probably recall, uh, that did not succeed. Uh, the Ukrainians succeeded in pushing the Russians back from Kiev. Russia gained some territory elsewhere. Over the course of the last two years, Ukraine did push Russia back in various places, but over the last year or so, there hasn't been much movement either way along the main front line. So about 18 percent of Ukraine remains occupied by Russian forces um
2: I you know I'm trying to think of a way to present that you don't have a map on the radio or anything like that but a, a way of um I don't know if you in the index or a percentage of or, or letter grade I don't know how would you determine who's winning who's losing or, or compared to and I guess uh, professor that would go into what were Russia's goals and, and Ukraine what they were up against? How how would you determine what would you give the state of this right now?
3: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean the simplest way people might think of it is in terms of territory gained or lost. And in, in that respect, Russia did gain, you know, considerable territory as I already mentioned in the early phase of the war, although they lost some of it. But I think it's probably more helpful that think of it in terms of objective set rather than, you know, this kilometer or that kilometer. So I think if we look at what Putin had in mind, he expected to overthrow the Ukrainian government and have a pro-Russian government in power. So his ultimate objective was complete con- political control over all of Ukraine, whether or not he had control over all the territory. That was the ultimate objective. <laughs> and so the fact that Ukraine has managed to maintain its independence, keep control over most of its territory, fight a much larger Russia, largely to a standstill over the last year. In those respects, I would say we would have to give Ukraine credit for how well they have fought and for exceeding the expectations of many outside analysts who thought the Russians would quickly overrun much of Ukraine.
2: You also, and I hate to use the word keeping score because I, this is far too serious to be flippant about it, but at some point you have to take into account casualties and the cost of all of this, right?
3: Yes, that's exactly right. And that's a, an area where it's hard to know exactly what the casualty figures are, but the, the numbers that Western uh, governments have propagated suggest that Russia has – suffered more than 300,000 casualties. And by casualties here, I clarify that we mean dead and wounded, not simply dead, right? So 300,000 uh, Russian casualties, probably north of that at this point, because those estimates are several months old. Do you have a and number no- on
2: killed in action on KIA or not?
3: Yeah, uh, the there's a bit of variance, but people are talking in the 70, 80, maybe even 100,000 or higher killed in action. And it's worth noting that this is more killed than the Soviet Union or Russia has lost since World War II, right? Throw in the Afghanistan War, the two wars in Chechnya, the war in Syria, the war in Georgia. You know, in all of those wars combined, the losses uh, were several tens of thousands. And now we're approaching a number of 100,000. So the losses on the Russian side have been massive. The losses on the Ukrainian side uh, are very large as well. Yesterday, Zelensky said, The number of Ukrainian soldiers killed was 30,000. I think most outside analysts think that's a low number, and it's probably close to twice that. And the area where we don't have a lot of clarity is on civilian casualties because millions of Ukrainians are currently living in territory occupied by Russia. And we have reasons to think that the number dead there are relatively large, but it's hard to know exactly how many because outside observers don't have access to that territory. What has it done to the economy of Russia? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, they're more isolated than ever uh, internationally because of the sanctions put in place by the United States and allies of the United States. Russia has lost much of its access to European energy markets, which was a centerpiece of the Russian economy for the last five decades. They are selling very little oil and gas now to Europe, whereas it used to be its main supplier, or sorry, its main consumer. Uh, but they have managed, especially in the oil market, to find other consumers. China, India, other countries have been buying Russian oil, although sometimes at a discount. Uh, overall, the Russian economy, as far as we can tell, actually grew in 2023. And that's because so much money is being <coughs> excuse me, poured into the war. So Uh, They've got weapons factories running all the time. They're paying very large salaries to people who enlist in the military and even larger death benefits to people who lose family members. So all of that money going into military industry and to military soldiers' families has led to a a growth in the economy. But it's kind of a distorting kind of growth. I think if we think long term about the Russian economy – Uh, They've gone further back to the Soviet era, lots of spending on the military, uh, but falling behind in other parts of the economy.
2: And Ukraine, the economy?
3: Yeah, the Ukrainian economy has suffered very badly as well. Um, And in some sense, they are dependent on external assistance to sort of keep the lights on and that kind of thing. Uh, Obviously, losing all of that territory is hurt. Uh, They Are losing uh, control over farmland and agriculture exports were important for Ukraine and are important for Ukraine. Uh, There was a period earlier in the war when Russia tried to blockade Ukraine from uh, exporting grain, but Ukraine had uh, a success this summer in terms of pushing the Russian Navy back and allowing them to continue exports of grain that go to various places around the world. Uh, But their economy has suffered a great deal as, as well. So the war has been very hard, both in terms of lives lost, and in terms of economic damage and destruction to both countries. Yeah, what about quality of life in Russia? Has it changed? Uh, A lot depends on where you are in the economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's certainly the case that uh, some people are getting more money, and a lot of the people who seem to be enlisting are those from poorer regions of the country, and they're being offered a salary higher than they could have ever achieved in the civilian sector. In other parts of the economy, wages are going up because there is a labor shortage, and there's a labor shortage because not only of the casualties we've already mentioned and people being mobilized into the army, but estimates are that close to a million people left Russia uh, during the first year of the war because of their opposition to the war or or because of their fear that they would be drafted. Mm -hmm. So Russia actually faces relatively high inflation now, and there's a risk that With this labor shortage and with all this money coming in from the military industrial part of the economy, that the economy will sort of overheat and uh, inflation will be harder and harder for them to control. So someone who's on a fixed income, like a pension, is probably losing out, whereas someone who's connected to the military economy may be doing better.
2: Um, You said a million people left. Where'd they go?
3: Uh, They went all over, uh, wherever they could. Some of them are in Central Asia, south of Russia. Some of them are in the South Caucasus, also south of Russia, countries like Georgia and Armenia. Some of them were able to go to various countries in Europe and uh, seek exile. Uh, People went to Latin America. People went to North America. Russians scattered all over the world trying to avoid this war.
2: Excuse my, my question if it's dumb, but can you just leave Russia if you want, if you're a citizen?
3: Uh, most people actually can. That's one way that post-Soviet Russia is different than the Soviet Union. They allow people who are opponents of the regime to leave for the most part. So uh, in that sense, there's not this pent-up group. Ever. There is, but the, you know, there isn't this sort of iron curtain thing where, where no one is allowed to escape. And that's kind of a safety valve for the regime. The, the strongest critics of the regime, if they're not in jail inside Russia, are, are in exile outside the country. If you could
2: take Ukraine and make the United States an analogy of that, not in terms of physical size, but if you were to to ratchet down the scale of Ukraine to the United States and, and maybe talk about what life is like in Ukraine if the equivalent was happening in the United States, although not on that scale, if that question makes sense to you.
3: Well, I am actually going to start with the geographic thing. Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe after Russia itself. And if you sort of superimposed a map of Ukraine on the United States, uh, the western part of Ukraine would be in Chicago and the eastern part would be in Boston. So it's a big country, okay. right? It's it's a very large country. Uh, and the population is around 40 million people. Uh, but you have to imagine if you're trying to sort of get your mindset around it as an American. You have to imagine that whole states are occupied by an invading army, and the rest of the country is at risk of being hit by a missile or a drone strike any time of day or night coming so, from the enemy. So, so to compare yeah, that
2: to the United States, uh, Brian, it would be like, give me give me a comparison.
3: In terms of the, the size of the territory? Well, an occupied, occupation,
2: yeah, and so forth. It would be like uh, one state would be occupied, say, uh, uh, Michigan would be uh, occupied and then the people in Illinois would have to worry about uh, not Michigan, Um, yeah, Michigan would be occupied and then the people in Illinois would have to worry about a, a missile coming in?
3: Yeah, it, really people anywhere, right? Russia has hit all parts of Ukraine with long-range missiles over the course of the war, mostly uh, in the capital Kiev and other key cities in the east and center of the country, but sometimes occasionally even in the western part of the country. So, you know, if, if we're going with sort of the East Coast being the eastern part of Ukraine by the analogy, then everyone up and down the eastern seaboard would either be in occupied territory or close to the front line, and people in the center of the country would be at, at risk of missile strikes.
2: So how do they manage to have an economy conduct business under those circumstances?
3: I think a lot of it has to do with the spirit of the Ukrainian people. They're determined not to give in. They feel like this is not the first time that Russia has tried to dominate them, and they would even say, uh, you know, potentially wipe them out. Uh, They they feel like, from their point of view, this is an existential war. They're fighting for their very survival of the country and as uh, a nation. And so they've rallied around the government. They're supporting the military. A lot of people are engaging in fundraisers, to, to buy drones for the front line, to send me- medical equipment and that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, obviously people want to have some downtime and they'll go to a cafe or something and, and try and forget about the war. But the reminders are always there. And I think the Ukrainian people, the uh, public opinion polls show this, still remain determined to, to win and to push Russia out.
2: Uh, let me take a break. We'll pick it up here. We'll come back. We're talking to Brian Taylor over two years now since Russia invaded Ukraine, Ukraine. Brian Taylor is the director of the Moynihan Institute of Global Affairs at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University, author of The Code of Putinism. I want to talk about that as well when we return. I had a, a couple of texts from somebody before that was urging me to watch a uh, an interview by Vladimir Putin because I'd learned some things from it, and, and it was presuming that Vladimir Putin was telling us a lot of truths that the United States media wouldn't tell us, which has me scratching my head. 923 more when we return. If you have any questions or comments, 504-260-1870. Tommy Tucker back in a flash, WWL.
1: Call from mom.
0: Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy.
2: It is 928. We're talking to Brian Taylor, director of the Moynihan Institute of Global Affairs at the Maxwell School at Syracuse, Syracuse University and author of The Code of Putinism, which I want to get to in a second. Um, When it comes to somebody texted in, I asked the audience because we like to invite their questions in. um, Somebody texted in, how is the U.S. viewed by the people of Ukraine and Russia or not? that they would have one collective opinion, but positive, negative, aggressive, supportive thoughts on that, Professor?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, starting with the Ukrainians, I mean, I think the Ukrainians are very grateful for military and economic assistance that has come from the United States and other allies, countries in Europe and in Asia. And I would note, because sometimes there's this misperception out there that the United States is – the one doing most of the aid. In fact, most of the aid is coming from European countries, and most European countries are giving a bigger share of their economy to Ukraine. Wait, hang hang on a, one a, second,
2: Professor. Yeah. Got, it's OK to call you, Professor, I presume?
3: <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Or Brian doctor? also works, whatever. Brian? Yeah. OK,
2: Brian. Um, I want you to to emphasize that again, because I think sometimes people conflate that with NATO and former President Trump talking about NATO not paying their share and what's going on in Ukraine. And they lump it all together in one big ball. And that's not the case. And I'd like you to spend a little bit more time on that, please, because, you know, it can't hurt to know what we're talking about, can it?
3: Yeah. So let's take both of these things. First of all, on the NATO side, the, the issue that it commonly comes up is that. NATO has a target that each member state spend at least two percent of its economy on military matters. So when President Trump or our others talk about what they're paying, it's not that they're paying. It's what they're spending on their own military. But the fact is that 18 of 31 NATO member states actually hit that threshold uh, this year. So most are at that threshold or above. There are a few that are not. Um, that's true. Uh, but All countries in Europe since 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, have been increasing their military spending. Now, if we look at the other side of it, economic and military assistance to Ukraine, that's a completely separate issue. And what I was pointing out was that the Europeans actually are providing more assistance to Ukraine than the United States. Let's talk about the United States piece, which is important. It's over $100 billion in in the last two years of the war. But that is about 0.16 percent of our entire economy, and it's less than 5 percent of our military budget. So if you think about it in terms of the losses inflicted on the Russian military, which the national security strategy of both Donald Trump and uh, President Biden described as one of our major competitors in the world, that military has been gutted uh, with – U.S. and European assistance, but all the fighting and dying is happening on the Ukrainian side. So it may seem a bit crass to put it in these terms, but if you think about it in terms of return on investment, the U.S. is spending very little and zero lives uh, to try and help Ukraine stay independent and provide for the future of European security. While Russia, on the
2: other hand, is, I don't know, depleting military. Would that be accurate?
3: Yeah, I mean, they've lost literally thousands of armored vehicles and when i say lost they've been destroyed by the ukrainian military over the last 2 years thousands of tanks armored personnel carriers artillery pieces they're d- pulling old tanks out of storage you know from the 50s and 60s and things like that and repurposing them in addition to the you know over 100,000, perhaps, you know, Russian soldiers killed. Uh, it's also worth noting that the Ukrainians, although they don't have a navy of their own, have destroyed about a quarter of Russia's Black Sea fleet using missiles and, and drones and things like that. So uh, the Russian military has been greatly degraded by this war.
2: What about intelligence? Have we learned anything about the Russian military as a result of this? Is And again, not to be crass, but... Return on investment, if you want to call it that?
3: Yeah, we're learning about the Russian military all the time. I mean, we're learning about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of their technology. We're learning about how they are organized to fight at both the sort of smaller level, the, the tactical level, and more sort of strategically in, in the entire battlefield there. Uh, we're learning or relearning about some of their weaknesses and pathologies, for example, the way they treat their own troops as cannon fodder, which is why they're taking such high uh, casualties. So there is a lot that we, uh, we the United States, and its intelligence community have learned uh, about Russia and the Russian military because of this war. And there's actually a story in the New York Times uh, just this morning about intelligence cooperation between the United States and Ukraine uh, since the war has begun and uh, what types of secret information the Ukrainians have been able to provide to help the United States better understand Russia.
2: Um, What about changing culture? I hate to say culture of conscription, because if you're conscripted, you don't really have a choice other than to leave the country. Is this whole thing made people a lot less um, willing to fight for Russia or, or get involved with the military?
3: Well, it's kind of a mixed picture. There are some people who are signing up because the pay benefits they're being offered are five times what their normal salary could be in the civilian economy. So what we're seeing is a lot of people serving in (coughs) – excuse me – the Russian military now are coming from the poorer regions Uh, of russia but very few people from the capital moscow the so-called second city saint petersburg the sort of big wealthier cities those people are trying to avoid the military uh, but other people are, are willing to sign up and i think one of the big issues that putin and the russian government is going to face sometime later this year is that they're running out of troops and are they going to be able to continue to entice people with these high salaries Or are they going to have to institute another mobilization, you know, a type of draft? Because the last one in September 2022 was really uh, unpopular and popular anxiety went way up. Lots of people fled the country. Uh, So the question is, can they withstand these continued demands for for lives to throw into this meat grinder in Ukraine?
2: Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine military soldiers. What's the situation there?
3: Uh, they also have a have a difficult situation, and they've been talking over the last you know four to six months or so about changing some of their conscription rules to lower the age of the draft because they've been trying to preserve their youngest men to preserve the future of the country, the people who are most likely to be having children going forward. So uh, they've been conscripting people over 27, but now they're thinking they're going to have to lower that because of the losses they've faced. They're going to— uh, need to mobilize more people in the Ukrainian military as well. But it's it's politically a sensitive issue, so they haven't quite resolved it yet. They've been relying a lot on volunteers, but now I think they're probably going to have to uh, institute a, another round of mobilization and draft on the Ukrainian side as well.
2: Brian, do you have a couple more minutes so we can talk about timeline on all of this? Yeah, sure. Good, because it seems as though – um, from what you've described, to stop giving aid now would be the, the the most foolish thing we could do, because it would then just about wipe out what we've accomplished so far, maybe. And then perhaps time is on the side of the allies and the Ukrainians as opposed to Russia, and maybe Russia would be more inclined to settle this. I also want to talk about your your book, The Code of Putinism, because, again, there are people that are considering Vladimir Putin our friend and, I don't get that at all. We're talking to Brian Taylor, director of the Moynihan Institute Global Affairs, Maxwell School at Syracuse, Syracuse University, author of The Code of Putinism. More when we come back. 937 Traffic Now, WWL. Nine forty-one, nineteen 19 till 10. Tommy Tucker, WWL, talking to Brian Taylor, director of the Moynihan Institute of Global Affairs at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University, author of The Code of Putinism. I'm chuckling because somebody texted in and said Putin is an angel compared to fascist Democrats. Um, somebody else texted in that, uh, that I should watch the Putin interview because he warned if Ukraine does this. Or that. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, First of all, Brian, if the United States were to cut off aid to Ukraine, given the fact that they don't provide the majority of it, but I would think a substantial amount, what would the effect be?
3: The effect would be that Ukraine would have to cede more ground to Russia as Russia continued to try and push forward. It's true that, as I said, Europe is providing more in terms of overall assistance, but there are certain things that the U.S., can provide at scale that no one else can, things like artillery, things like missiles for air defense systems that protect Ukrainian cities from Russian missile and drone attacks. So we already know that Ukraine <coughs> excuse me, is rationing artillery and not able to sort of match the Russians on that front and without uh, this current assistance package that's uh, stuck in the house this would be a year of Ukrainian losses and Ukrainian uh, retreat. Uh, Not that they would give up, but it would be much harder for them. And I do want to add one important thing about uh, this $60 billion that people have heard talked about. Uh, That's to sustain them militarily over the entire next year. And 80% of that money is actually spent in the United States. It's not most of it going to Ukraine itself. It's being used to buy artillery and other weapon systems from American factories uh, either to go to Ukraine or to refill the U.S. military supplies, uh, given some assistance that was provided earlier. So we're in some cases getting rid of stuff that's old that our military doesn't want anymore and using the money in this assistance package to buy new and better material for the U.S. military. So I would really want to stress that point. This is not simply, uh, you know, charity that's going to Ukraine. It's providing jobs for Americans, and it's helping the U.S. military while also helping Ukraine defend its independence from Russian invasion.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I think there is a feeling, and it's tough sometimes when the truth gets in the way of what you already believe, but there's a feeling that um, boatloads of money, cash is just being put on, you know, pall- the, the – the, uh, what is it? Pallet of cash being put on a plane and sent over to Ukraine. And then um, uh, the, the president gets to do whatever he wants to do with it. And that's not the case at all. Eighty percent of it's spent here. And, and you, you, in a lot of ways, uh, in a lot of cases, you're manufacturing things that are going to be destroyed, which means you have to buy more of them. Right.
3: Yeah, uh, that's right. I mean, it's a very costly war in terms of just the scale of the fighting, the amount of artillery used, the number of drones employed, the number of armored vehicles employed. Uh, It's like World War One, World War Two. We haven't seen a war like this in Europe since World War Two, and it is extremely uh, bloody and costly, and it requires a lot of equipment and a lot of munitions to get, to keep the fighting uh, going. And if the assistance isn't coming from the U.S., the fighting will not stop. It just means one side will you know, have the advantage and be able to uh, overwhelm the other side. Russia hasn't proven super effective at going on the offensive, but if Ukraine uh, runs out of artillery support, then it'll be much easier for the Russians than it has been over the last two years.
2: Who does time favor in this?
3: That's a really hard question to answer. And uh, I think the picture is a bit, uh, You know, bleak, honestly, because Ukraine is clearly going to continue to fight. They feel like their lives and their freedom is at stake and they're not willing to submit to Russia and allow Russian domination to return. And the Russian state, so far, has proven resilient enough to keep the troops coming, uh, to keep military support coming. I'll, I'll remind our listeners that Russia is buying artillery from North Korea. They're getting missiles and drones from the Iranians. Uh, you know, they're using illicit supplies of high-tech chips that are coming through China and other countries. So this is really a small group of autocracies fighting against a European, Uh, democracy with the assistance of the United States and other European uh, democracies. But Putin doesn't seem to want to give in. He wants to control all of Ukraine, and Ukraine doesn't want to be controlled. So I think if we're thinking about how this ends, uh, the best prospect, uh, and I would hate to put odds on it because it's hard to say, but the best prospect is, is Russia starts to crumble under the stress of how much they're having to pour into the military, how many lives they're losing, uh, and that some pressure comes from within that system. Unfortunately, I don't see that happening over the next year. I think it's a longer-term prospect.
2: Tell me about the code of Putinism.
3: Yeah, so this book is an attempt to explain the mentality of Putin and his close circle of advisors, most of whom uh, have either backgrounds in the KGB, (coughs) excuse me, or backgrounds in the Soviet bureaucracy, They believe Russia is entitled to be considered one of the world's great powers on par with the United States and China. They resent uh, the fact that Russia became so weak after the Soviet Union collapsed. They feel like they were humiliated. They're resentful about that. So they dislike the West because they think Russia was treated unfairly, and they're trying to sort of reassert Russia's position in the world and also try and reassert the authoritarian repressive power of the Russian state against their own people. So these two things have gone together, a kind of expansionist agenda abroad and a very repressive uh, agenda at home.
2: You know, Brian, there are people that think um, that Putin is somebody to be envied, that Putin is our friend, um, that Putin is telling the truth and U.S. politicians are lying. I'm just telling you the text I get, and it might be the fringe. I don't know. But what would you say to people like that from from a, a man who spent a lot of time studying him and the historical context and so forth? If they think that they're they're watching a guy who who really does have the best interest of both Russia and the United States in his mind.
3: Well, I'm sure that Putin thinks in his mind that he has the best interests of Russia at heart. But I, I would dispute that he, in fact, uh, does. I, I think that he has taken Russia down uh, Uh, sort of mistaken and ultimately uh, futile dead end of trying to reestablish this domination over its region. Uh, But I think sometimes people think that Putin is this supporter of traditional conservative values or something like that. Mm -hmm. He likes to to play that up. But one should note that uh, just last week, a leading Russian opposition figure was killed in jail. And for days and days, the Russian state authorities refused to give Alexei Navalny's mother her son's body back so he could give him a decent burial. I don't see anything particularly adm- admirable about that uh, you know, behavior. I think people should know that although he presents himself as this sort of leader of traditional values, he – Uh, is known to have multiple mistresses, multiple children with those mistresses. The divorce rate in Russia is off the charts. Uh, You know, abortion is actually higher in Russia than it is in many countries in the world. Uh, There are lots of things about Russia that do not hold it up as this image of this, uh, you know, stronghold of conservative traditional uh, values. And I think Putin just tries to manipulate that to divide uh, the U.S. populace. But I think if people looked into who this guy really is and some of the things he's done and how much money he has taken from the Russian people to build mansions and palaces for himself and that kind of thing, they might not see him as quite as positive a figure uh, as they're hearing in some quarters.
2: You mentioned Navalny and and the— Ukrainian intelligence chief, I don't understand what's going on there, says that he died of a blood clot. I don't know if an autopsy has been performed. I don't know if he's seen the autopsy. I would imagine there are ways that somebody, um, a blood clot can be induced to cause somebody's death. What What is going on there? Do you have any idea, Brian?
3: I, I don't know specifically, obviously, what killed Alexei Navalny last week, but I, I will say that he would still be alive if it were not for Vladimir Putin. We know that Putin... Uh, in the Russian state, tried to poison and kill Navalny in 2020. Navalny actually miraculously survived and investigated and proved that the Federal Security Service, the successor to the KGB, was behind the effort to assassinate him. And then when he returned to Russia, uh, because he believed that as a Russian politician, he should be in his home country, he did not want to have to go into exile. He was arrested, thrown in jail, Kept in solitary confinement for weeks and weeks at a time, sent to a harsh prison north of the Arctic Circle. So, regardless of what happened last week, I think we can determine that Alexei Navalny is dead because of the actions of Vladimir Putin and the Russian state.
2: So, what what is going on with the main directorate of intelligence, Kirillio or whatever his name is, Budinov? What what his is angle in this? What what is his motivation for this? Do you have any idea what's going on internally in Ukraine?
3: Um. I'm not sure why he made the statement he did today, uh, saying that, yes, it really was a blood clot that, that killed him. Uh, I, I guess I will wait and see what he says in the coming days about that to justify his pronouncement. But regardless of whether it was uh, you know, a blood clot and they didn't intend to kill him this time, we know for a fact that they intended to kill him several years ago, and they've been keeping him in, in conditions that would be ruinous for his health. Um, So let's wait and see exactly what we find out about what happened a week ago. But I think uh, we can ultimately say it was the Russian decision uh, to go after him and to imprison him that ultimately led to his death. Uh,
2: Before we let you go, Brian, one final thought on Putin uh, uh, for people to remember.
3: Uh, I think people should bear in mind that this is a guy who's a dictator who's been in power for 25 years. He's determined to hold on to power for as long as he lives, as far as we can tell. Uh, He's gone to war in Georgia. He's gone to war in Ukraine since 2014. And then the full-scale invasion, he's gone to war in Syria. And I think he thinks that if he is able to continue pushing forward, he will demonstrate that Russia, which is less than 2 percent of the world economy, is more— powerful and can have its way in Europe than the United States and its European allies, which together make up about half of the world economy. He believes he has the will and the persistence to remake the European uh, political order that has kept the peace since World War II in a way that's to Russia's advantage. And I wouldn't expect him to stop until he is made to stop. And Ukrainians are trying to stop him. And they're not asking for anyone to go fight on their behalf. They're just asking for some military and economic assistance so they can fight Russia on their own.
2: Thank but you, I don't Brian. Think- We're out of yeah, time. Sure. I appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Back in a flash, WWL.